Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is our ninth episode, and this one is about loser Trump and the new serfdom. Stay tuned. Great song, but when it comes to dirty laundry, Trump is at the very pinnacle of the food chain for dirty laundry. He produces it every day, several times a day sometimes. I wouldn't think there needs to be much discussion to characterize Trump as a loser. And what is wrong with anyone who follows this loser over the cliff of rational thinking and good conduct? This is John Flannery, and I'm your host as we wander through the good, the bad, and ugly of this past week in pandemic land. It's a troubling landscape when you consider the number of citizens who've been infected. As I'm speaking right now, we have 940,757 persons infected. And we have a death toll that's now at 54,941 persons. The lead for this week has to be the chaos that is the direction and misdirection from Trump's West Wing. And like a lot of times in public life or trials, there are instances that sort of sum up everything. And the worst insane, insensible comment by Trump this past week that sums it all up and that's reportedly prompted, thank God, an interruption in Trump's daily droning rallies, Castro style, that Trump pretends is for pandemic updates when it's for his reelection. Now, if you're taking a holiday from any event or publication of what Trump has to say, I quite understand. We're all trying to minimize our exposure to the other pathogen, that is Trump. Trump suggested people should think about using Clorox and Lysol and introducing light into our bodies where the sun doesn't shine, presumably through some orifice. And no, I'm not joking. This is exactly what he said. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or? almost a cleaning, because you see it gets in the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it'd be interesting to check that. So that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. Sure, of course. Clorox to clean out our lungs. Right. Go get a UV light and introduce the light into your body some way. When we talk about common sense, we imagine that most of us, by five or six years of age, know not to drink uh, Lysol or Clorox to drink a a disinfectant. Where was Trump's mom when he was growing up? Well, we've never noticed that he had much affection for people to begin with. He's always been a user. Well, let's look at the facts. Anybody could, as I just did, look at a bottle of Clorox, handy to me, 
and look at the label, and what does it say? Warning. Keep it out of your eyes, off your skin, and, quote, if swallowed, close quote, call a doctor or poison control center. Call a doctor or poison control center. Now, this is what really amazes me. On the Talking Head shows this Sunday, this is when I'm recording this, we're asking Trump's medical team what they think about that statement. What is there to think? It was insane. And then they mutter nostrums to soothe any impression that Trump is the loser that he is. Fauci is about the only uh, reliable person that you can listen to. Why do we have an expert asking what Trump was thinking? What, what is that about? Trump said to drink Clorox and light up your innards. Why isn't that the beginning and the end of a criticism for anybody who could possibly say that? I know it's considered déclassé, not to invoke Hillary Clinton. You know, like somehow or other, she's worse than Trump and wasn't a great presidential candidate, despite the, the efforts by the Russians and others to compromise the fairness of the election in every way possible. I supported Hillary when she ran for president and make no apologies for supporting her. And in a moment, if you consider what she had to say, I think you'll agree. Let's consider what she said about Trump in 2016. And for my money, she nailed it. No self-discipline, no self-control, no sense of history, no understanding of the limits uh, of the kind of power that any president should impose upon himself. He has shown none of that. Let's return to torture. And you know what? I will order the American military to commit war crimes. What he has laid out is the most dangerous, reckless approach to being president than I think we've ever seen. Now, don't you agree? Don't you agree with everything she just said about Trump? There are so many data points demonstrating that Trump is unfit in every category, in every direction possible to be our chief executive at any time in American history. But particularly in the midst of this challenging health crisis, which means uh, severe illness, means life and death. You have to ask yourself, is this his incompetence, this basic incompetence that he was never good enough for the job, that we couldn't even trust him to park a car? Or is this part of what he promised Putin he'd do, destroy Americans' greatness, not make it great again? Trump, no question about it, brings the yahoos out into the clearing from the streets and highways from across America, a cultist minority, out there now demanding to liberate states, to demand the chance to have their lives be at risk so they can go back to work. And it doesn't stop there. Trump brings out elected officials like Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick in Texas. He thinks that we should, you know, sacrifice our life if necessary for these businesses. Please listen. Night, there are more important things than living, and that's saving this country for my children and my grandchildren, and saving this country for all of us. And I don't want to die. Nobody wants to die. But man, we gotta we gotta take some risk and get back in the game and get this country back up and running. Even without the briefings that Trump was getting, that were telling him how much more severe was this crisis, Biden garnered enough information from what was publicly available to be concerned about it as early as January. That's a difference in leadership. That's something Hillary could do. That's something Biden can do. And Trump, for whatever reason, incompetence or that he's in somebody's hip pocket, he can't do it. Listen to what Biden had. Well, first of all, what alarmed me was that word came out of uh, that the first case uh, in, uh, in, in Korea, 
and uh, in South Korea and the United States hit about the same time. It was clear to me from when Trump administration transitioned from us to them that they had no interest in talking about pandemics. We warned them about them. We were concerned there'd be future pandemics. We had set up an office within the White House to have a pandemic office. They just disregarded all of it. And, uh, and this was clear to me by that time, the president had no sense, no sense of science, no sense of responsibility. And I, and I just really, uh, it really worried me that uh, he was both unqualified and incompetent to deal with something like this. It's not anything he's ever dealt with or, or had any inclination to deal with. Now we're on notice. We have governors in the South about to open the doors of businesses in their states in various ways. I make no apologies to these governors for what they're doing. My apologies are to the rational inhabitants of the South and everywhere else in America. But we've got governors in the South who think people should now be able to go to bars, bowling alleys to get their nails done, go to a barbershop, go to the beaches. These states don't have enough tests or procedures to detect the virus, to insulate people at work or any of these places from being infected and perhaps dying. You can't practice social distance at a bowling alley or when you're getting your nails cut. We can't trace in place. We don't have the the ability to do that. These governors' reckless boldness puts us all at risk. Talk about just a Hail Mary pass. Uh, It means they care more to get people to work than they care about whether they'll become ill or they may die. And both of those things are unavoidable given our experience. It's not like we don't have any experience to tell us what's going to happen. The citizens of these states may not only be infected themselves in their states or die, but some of them will travel to states with more sensible defensive postures, stay-at-home postures, And they will compromise those states and their citizens in their safety. Another rational voice besides Fauci is Governor Cuomo. Most people accept that. His briefings have been stellar. They let us know what's going on, what his thinking is, what his hopes are in terms of going forward and following the science. He outlines his approach as follows for the New York area. And he's part of a group of governors that are trying to have sensible policies to deal with with the virus. Listen to what he has to say. The good news is uh, we have shown that we can control the spread of the virus, right? Which people take for granted now, but I wasn't always so sure. We could have taken all these measures, close down, stay home, and we could have seen that spread continue to go up. That would have been a really frightening place, but that was a possibility. Uh, We showed that we can control the spread. It went up the so-called plateau would hit a flat spot, and now we're on the downside of the plateau. Uh, The question is, how fast is that decline, and uh, how long does it take to make the decline? We have about 1,300 people per day, new diagnoses coming into the system. Uh, We lost about 474 people yesterday. Uh, which is a horrific number, but it's the only good news is it's less than the previous uh, numbers of people we we lost. And the hospitalization rate is coming down. We have about 16,000 people in hospitals. Uh, So the numbers are all on the decline, and that's the good news. How long does it take until that number gets to a uh, small enough level where you can sleep at night and not worry about it? Could be two weeks, could be three weeks, could be six weeks. 
as Speaker Pelosi has said, as Governor Cuomo has said, and everyone else who thinks, we must listen to the science. We must follow the science. Now, this pressure about going back to work is, is not a fiction either. We can't ignore the economic pressure on so many people who need to work because they need the funds to live, to subsist. Some of our wage and salary workers can barely survive economically, or maybe not at all if they don't work. And officials pressing the choice on them to return to work, knowing of their desperation, what I would characterize as the new serfdom, if you will, because they're squeezing them because they've denied, him the, denied them the ability to live otherwise. Um, the short answer to these wage and salary workers who are stressed in the here and now is we shouldn't continue to be shortchanging the working poor and the stressed wage and salary workers of this nation. Our Congress should be opening the nation's coffers and underwriting the subsistence of wage and salary workers because our nation's economic policies have been short-sighted and helped put these workers in peril years ago by the fact that they shortchanged them from the productivity they created, the benefits that were also owed them. The same is true with small businesses where the greatest stress exists. We have large corporations moving in and trying to take the SBA small business loans for them. That's not acceptable. We should be supporting the states. Wake up, Moscow Mitch. Bankruptcy is an irresponsible suggestion. We have to support the states. The United States, remember that part? The federal government, part of the trade and so forth. But Moscow Mitch has never been in the forefront of accepting the Constitution or policy that was rational for anything but his tiny constituency that doesn't include us. The longer economic answer to how we got here is a difficult one because it hasn't been solved, although it's been known for many years. We have refused to deal with it for decades. In other words, we didn't get to this economic situation overnight. For many and for many years, wage and salary earners have been shortchanged despite their productivity that benefited top exec shareholders and the market, but did not benefit the workers responsible for this expanding productivity. That was not acceptable, it's not acceptable now, and it's part of the reason that we have problems right now among the stressed wage and salary workers. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about what I call the new serfdom later. Stay tuned. The buying power of the proletariat's gone down. Money's getting shallow and mean. Well, the place I love best is a sweet memory. It's a new path that we draw. That song was a collaboration of Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash, and they call the song Working Man's Blues. And you may have made out what Dylan's singing was decrying in that short beginning that you heard. The buying power of the proletariat's gone down. Money's getting shallow and weak. I'm arguing that what we have now and have for some time is our new serfdom. Unlike FDR's New Deal, this is the worker's raw or bad deal. A worker's share of productivity and buying power has been static or been going down for wage and salary workers as compared to what employers walk away with. So how fair is it to say modern workers are like serfs? 
Well, let's go back a little bit. Not that I was there. <laughs> In medieval Europe, a tenant farmer, the serf, was tied to his landlord's plot of land. He worked it so he could subsist. Most of the grain, his productivity, was handed over to his landlord. The serf had to take care of himself based on what he got out of the transaction that he didn't hand over, what he sold. But the serf had to use his landlord's grain mills and no others. The serf couldn't move around without his landlord's approval. You get the idea. That's why the Irish have such affection for their past landlords. Now a preacher, Martin Butzer, said, All the clever heads are engrossed by commerce, which nowadays, that is those days, is so saturated with dishonesty that it's the last sort of business an honorable man should engage in. Has it changed? Let us just say some are better than others. Many medieval workers did work because they had to and felt this necessity was conditioned by pressure from above. This is what Eric Fromm wrote in his book, Escape from Freedom. Modern workers, on the other hand, Fromm insists, came to be driven to work, not so much by external pressure, but by an internal compulsion which made them work, as only a very strict master could have made people do in other societies. This compulsion, uh, from insisted, was necessary, more than steam or electricity, to make capitalism go. Now, Fromm argues very forcefully and persuasively that capitalism introduced indifference. The relationship between employer and employee, he wrote, is permeated by the spirit of indifference. Fromm said this, this was not a relationship of two human beings who have any interest in the other outside of this mutual usefulness. The employer or manufacturer, Fromm said, is not primarily interested in what he produces. He produces essentially in order to make a profit from his capital investment. It is almost impossible in America to discuss the class struggle. It's a third rail in American politics. One labor commentator said that labor is a commodity, neither more nor less than sugar. Labor is measured by the clock, sugar by the scales. Wages and salaries are not the worker's share in the sale of the commodity or service or the profit it brings in excess of whatever the wage or salary costs the employer to make that commodity. But shouldn't the worker share in an economy's growth, particularly if that worker contributed to it. Now the notion of compulsion to work aside, workers work to exist. They literally sacrifice their life in small and large ways to work, but they don't expect to go in and to be risking illness and death. That's another question we've been discussing. They're not tied to the land or landlord. Uh, they are isolated in that sense, nor can they walk away from who hires them without in a way renouncing their own existence. The more unemployment, the lower the price an employer need pay in wage or salary for, own, for any worker. Sometimes workers are given excuses to pay them less. How foreign trade, competitors, compromise their exports and what they can pay their workers. Dylan and Cash even have a phrase in their song. They say low wages are reality if we want to compete abroad. In 1997, I had a great opportunity. 
I was appointed by the House Committee on Education and the Workforce as special counsel and project director for what was termed the American Worker Project. Dem Rep Patsy Mink from Hawaii was the ranking member on the Oversight Subcommittee, and I work with Patsy. The objective was to describe the American worker, his status then in 1997, and what we could expect was the future for the worker. It was a great opportunity, but it was hemmed in by politics. By 1997, we had the year-round political campaign. There once was a time when you campaigned and a time when you governed. Not anymore, not then, and certainly not now. Campaigning is all year round, and it affects the business. We held congressional hearings for this American Worker Project, and we did field trips from coast to coast and interviewed some outstanding persons with some truly exceptional programs. One of the standouts among all the people we consulted was Jared Bernstein. He'd had a long career in labor economics, and since then, he's become the former economic advisor to Vice President Biden. And with any luck, he may be his advisor in the next administration, and we'd all benefit from that. In those days, I'd call up Jared, and he could tell you chapter and verse with charts and statistics what made sense in labor economics and the politics of it, what to look for, and how it might be improved or resolved if it was a problem. He testified in a hearing in 1997, part of this project, that America did not have a skills deficit. It's not something we needed to deal with by education and so forth. What we had was a wage deficit. And one of the best examples he cited to prove both points, that is, no skills deficit but a wage deficit, was that the wages of high-skilled workers should be going up if they were really in demand and low supply. But Jared found that inflation-adjusted entry-level hourly wage rates of college-educated workers just entering the workforce fell 10% from 1989 through 1996. Now that sounds like a skills surplus, right? Jared refined his study to look at, you know, a narrower group of people looking at newly minted college grads with computer programming. He said, if anywhere we should find a wage push to bid up the technological revolution, it should be here. But in fact, again, between those same years, between 1989 and 1996, the real wage offers for these computer wizards had fallen 9%. Jared therefore found a decelerating shift in compensation, higher paid occupations as well. What accounted for this? Jared testified that it was the unleashing of market forces, but also the erosion of worker protection. And what were the worker protections? The reduced role of labor unions to collectively bargain or to bargain at all, the resistance to minimum wages, lacks anti-discrimination enforcement, disregard of workplace safety protocols. Hardly a Republican agenda, and that's always been part of the problem. Now that was 1997. More recently in 2015, Jared took another look at the economy, wrote about it, and in a book that he called The Reconnection Agenda. Jared concluded that something is fundamentally wrong with our society, and it is that Economic growth can no longer be counted on to deliver broadly shared prosperity. If there's a niche and expertise that Jared has, it's how we do or don't distribute growth. Why hadn't America's recoveries touched the middle class? The benefits of the growth were and remain concentrated at the top 
of the economic scale. Jared added that since our current economic expansion that began in the second half of 2009 through the end of 2014, GDP was up 14%, but the typical household's real income was 1.5% below where it had been in 2009. They were losing ground. Corporate profits, on the other hand, reached their highest level on record as a share of national income with the record beginning in 1929. So, is this class warfare buried in the stats and the silence of the cognoscenti, though felt real and strong and hurting in America's typical household? Sure sounds that way. Of course, the growth is not what is upsetting. That's good. The problem is how the typical household has been left out of the growth, out of sharing, out of the growth that the workers created. If there's a slogan for the workers. It is, workers want parity, not charity. And why should it be charity? They earned it. They made it possible. What good is growth without prosperity shared across the board? There was a time. Let's go back further. Back before Jared in 97, back behind his uh, predictions, from 1947 through the late 1970s, the rate of income growth for low, middle, and high-income families was roughly the same, approximately dub doubling over this period. But since the late 70s, not so good, not in tandem, certainly not parity. But even that isn't required. There should have been movement. Real income for the bottom 20% of Americans has stagnated over the past 35 years. And median income has grown much more slowly than it did before 1980. You'll not be surprised to learn that income for the top 1% has grown more quickly than income for all other groups. And don't let anyone tell you that taxes and transfers have made the distribution any more equal or fair. Remember the workers, parity not charity. Larry Mitchell, who's another member of the Economic Policy Institute, has done some studies along these same lines. He found a significant variance between growth and compensation, disfavoring, I'm afraid to say, the worker. Larry also identified wedges that he thought accounted for this variance. It was the difference between capital and labor. It was the difference between the business profit and the worker's share as reflected in payroll. Let, let, why don't you listen to Larry explain himself okay. a bit? Well, we're often told that productivity is a source of the, uh, our ability to increase living standards. Uh, and productivity has been going up each year. Productivity is the growth of output of goods and services per hour work. So it's basically how the pie grows. It's how much the economy can distribute to people. Uh, it turns out, uh, as we show in a key graph, figure one, which shows the growth of productivity between 1948 and 2011. And the key part of the graph is that in the first part of the period up through the mid-70s, productivity grows, and then the pay, the hourly compensation of a typical worker, grows in tandem. Mm -hmm. Thereafter, however, it diverges. And so it really tells us a few different things. One is, that productivity growth actually provides the potential for raising the living standards of the typical working family. It doesn't actually guarantee it. Uh, and that the divergence between pay and productivity has been going on for many decades. Our research shows that the divergence has never been greater than it has been over the last 10, 11 years. Okay.
Well, the, the, the key thing to wrap your head around, OT ears, uh, is that productivity since 1973 has grown over 80%. But the hourly compensation, all wages and benefits per hour worked, of the median worker, the worker in the middle of the distribution, half make more, half make less. So the median worker's real hourly compensation grew 10.7%. 10.7 versus 80. That's a big <laughs> divergence. So basically the question is why didn't people uh, earn more? And I think what's really important about this is it tells people that it wasn't that the economy couldn't provide more. Mm. There's been this long-term stagnation. And, and the pie and, and kept growing. The pie was there. We have not been broke. Yeah. We, you know, employers have not been broke. The economy has not been broke. It just hasn't been getting to the typical worker. Okay. And in fact, I can tell you that I think that's what we're facing in the next 30 years. We will not be broke in the next 30. There are all sorts of consequences that run from earning less than your potential as a reflected share of the growth made possible by a worker's productivity. Lifestyle is certainly affected. How much debt you carry is another consequence. How much you save for a rainy day, a minor crisis, or, more pertinent to our times, a worldwide pandemic that has you staying at home and closing your job down. Years ago, I had to study the savings rate in a mediation dispute about paying pilots a foreign station allowance. It's interesting how consistent savings were after World War II. But recently, the savings rate tells us a lot more about the individual less economic resilience of a worker who can save less, if anything at all, than those early days. The fourth quarter of last year, 2019, had a savings ratio of 7.7%. That's savings as a percent of disposable income. Now, the top 20% of the Americans, those are considered in the $80,000 to $100,000 bracket, they saved 12% of their disposable income. You want to guess what happens in the other brackets? The next level, 60 to 80000 they saved about 4%. So it dropped from 12 to 4%. If you earn forty to 60000 you save about minus 1%. In other words, you're borrowing in some form or other. So that's from plus 12 to minus 1. If you earn 20 to 40,000, you save about minus 2%. Again, more debt. If you earn less than 20,000, according to the numbers, you're about minus 1%. So those who have to be concerned about a rainy day, surviving it based on what they saved, is anybody who earns less than 60,000 a year. They're in the most stringent, straight-jacket econ economically they can be. Now, these folks without savings are struggling with low-income growth and high cost. They're exposed to economic shocks, and in this case, right now, this pandemic. True, the government has unemployment millions, but the unemployed are not getting those monies. True, small mom-and-pop businesses can get SBA loans, except that the SBA ran out and will again with the new monies that they have to distribute. We need another bill from Congress for that. And so what do we see when governments are opening up business again? They're taking advantage of the desperation of these people who need to work to subsist to live. 
Uh, Dylan and Cash uh, had a line about whether or not some will turn to crime. And it has happened before. In their song, they said, I can't save a dime. I got to be careful. I don't want to be forced into a life of continual crime. Some families will feel the downward pressure and be concerned about surviving, physically surviving, if they can't afford mortgage or rent, food or medicine. And that brings me to some of the closing lines from Dylan and Cash. Got both eyes tight shut, just sitting here trying to keep the hunger from creeping its way into my gut. Stay tuned for the next item. Thank you. For This is a presidential election year. Former Vice President Joe Biden, age 77, is going to choose a vice president he can work with, one that can take over if that should become necessary, but especially a ticket partner that can help him win in November. It seemed to me since 2016, after that election, that there had to be a woman on this ticket heading it or helping it through the crazy political season that is the general election. I thought the misconduct of Trump in 2016, his Russian pact with Putin, what Director Comey did, so outrageous, and more chicanery than we can go through here. And yet still, Hillary got more popular votes than the orange menace in the West Wing. Now it strikes me that the vice presidential nominee this year also has to be a person of color. Not only because women and persons of color have been so strong among the supporters of Democrats historically, uh, not even the issues that are pending that are never dealt with that involve women and persons of color, but how critical the black vote and the vote of women were for Biden breaking out of the electoral pact to become the presumed Democratic nominee for president. That's a strong statement in and of itself. Now, Biden has already and clearly promised his vice presidential nominee will be a woman. And while I haven't played a pickup game of basketball in some while, I think it's an easy layup to the basket that his choice should also be a person of color. Kamala Harris has shown herself to good advantage in hearings on the Hill and on the public stage and stump when she was herself a presidential contender. And even now, back in the Senate, She's speaking out against the incompetence of Trump and trying to work the problem, the pandemic. You know, I have to tell you, I'm really sick of talking about Donald Trump. I really am, because part of the conversation about him is there's some really kind of, we're still all not really clear, I think, because the, the conversation suggests that maybe he'll act like a president. He's not going to act like a president. He doesn't understand the job. So, you know, yeah, I... I I absolutely am going to do everything I can to elect Joe Biden, our presumptive nominee, to be the next president of the United States, because I'm looking and seeing every day the suffering in the streets of America. There's also Stacey Abrams. Stacey has been asked if she would consider the position of vice president, and she has answered the question so frequently and appropriately that she's being charged with campaigning for the position. Talk about a catch-22. I would say this, I've been asked this question since last year. I was brought into the national conversation and I've been very honest about my willingness to serve. 
as a young black woman growing up in Mississippi, I learned that if you don't raise your hand, people won't see you and they won't give you attention. I have no reservations about either candidate. And if I were pushed, I'd probably say Kamala Harris makes more sense to me. But uh, and there may be others I've overlooked, but these two political warriors would be worthy nominees and either would make a big difference to help the ticket. It's legitimate to say Dem candidates expect the support of women and blacks, but they don't always deliver on the promises they make in the campaign, not after they're elected. So let's give a black woman the well-deserved opportunity to be our next vice president and to make history finally. We're going to shatter the ceiling this year. Stay tuned. I think we should talk about uh, the environment, the earth, how it's responded to our response to the pandemic. We've changed the way we're living. We were right to do so. Some resist these changes at some risk to their health, even to their life. We should uh, pay attention to what's going on with our environment since the pandemic. Something special has happened. Our environment is doing better. If one looks up at the sky, in any nation on earth, the sky is clear. We have reports from LA and Venice about how clear the air has become. This is amazing. These are ties that may bind us in all the nations across this globe. This circumstance also answers one of the questions of what role humans play in global warming and pollution. We've been somewhat removed from the field and the skies have cleared. We're not driving cars, factories are not doing things. It's clear the environment was worse when we were active. So we are responsible to those naysayers who think we have no effect on the environment. Plainly, we do. We might wonder if the skies today <laughs> compare favorably with the skies before the Industrial Revolution, but we're not gonna be able to figure that one out. Ironically, we've respected the teachings of Mother Nature to stay the hell out of the way of the virus. And in the bargain, we've improved the environment. We should be reconciling these two events. The pandemic and global pollution are inextricably intertwined. The lesson from both is to respect nature, not to abuse nature, its animals, its creatures. The hermits we've become are out there taking air baths on roads and in parks at a safe distance. They're healthier for the exercise. Now we ascribe deaths to environmental abuse, but this pandemic, because it's changed our behavior and improved the environment, has ironically saved some lives. One Stanford professor said 50,000 people would have died prematurely in China, but for the cleansing of the air. We've seen the disquiet among the fossil fools with oil worth less uh, for a variety of reasons, but also because the purchases at the gas pump uh, given the fewer cars are down, which means pollution is down. No doubt the water and the soil are improved somewhat. Animals are visible on streets and towns. <laughs> it's like one of these movies. There's a legal principle involved, which I think more people should understand and talk about. Jefferson advocated the legal principle of usufruct. I have a friend who's 
pushed this on me for so many years, he forced me to study it. And it's, it's a terrific notion. It means that we may enjoy nature, our environment, and our lifetimes, but we must pass it on undiminished, as unspoiled, that is, as we found it, and provide it that way to the next generation. We are practicing what we should always be doing and should have been doing. We have been the authors of our own suffering. Not enough folk understand that the increasing frequency and strength of extreme weather is closed, caused by global warming and our abuse of this planet, our only planet. A compromised environment expands the range and spread of vector-borne diseases like malaria. In this podcast, I've spoken about the new serfdom, but we have to consider the environment is in a similar context. Those hit hardest are the same ones who've been denied a share of our prosperity as a nation. So those are hit hardest by global warming, those who are most fragile economically. Wouldn't Haiti have fared better with a better health system? Could Haiti have suffered a less severe weather storm if years earlier we did anything to combat global warming. We humans have aided and abetted this virus by the exploitation and abuse of animals. Everybody's trying to cast blame. We, humanity, are to blame. You may have heard the comments of Jane Goodall on my earlier podcast saying just this. Humans got this virus through an intermediate host. Some posit a scaly anteater called a pangolin that's traded in illegal wildlife markets. Most of the diseases that humans can have were caused by zoonoses or germs that came from other animals. HIV emerged from uh, non-human primates. Ebola was born by bats. The measles virus originally uh, evolved from a disease that hurt cows. If the planet and all that's on it is thought of a living organism, and we're part of that organism, we are attacking ourselves, putting our existence at risk, out of our arrogance and ignorance. Some insist that the planet presently is protecting itself from us. In any case, we are reaping what we've sown by our failure to appreciate that we have to respect nature, not abuse it. Some have used scripture to calculate the age of our Earth, many still do. They say Earth has been around so many thousands of years, when it's been around for three billion years. The continents and tectonic plates have moved over the many years this planet has been here. Cyanobacteria was formed 3,500 million years ago, and it can exist in a variety of habitats and has been around longer than there was Homo erectus or Homo sapiens, talk about false advertising. And it will be around if humans become extinct. There have been mass extinctions on our planet but cyanobacteria has survived when the dinosaurs could not. Perhaps our planet should have been called oceans since most of Earth is water. Leonardo da Vinci, no less, sketched the waters of the world coursing about the planet and in the air above, comparing it to the blood that runs through our bodies. It's hoped that this crisis may have caught the attention of awakened minds and given strength to those who already knew what was the proper relationship to nature which is to us and to the planet. Thanks for joining us in our ninth podcast. Be safe, and we'll have another podcast next Sunday. Subscribe if you haven't. Until next time, as I said, be safe. Thank you.